0: Do you remember being a child? More specifically, do you remember being a child on Christmas Eve? Some of you will have to remember back further than others. But you can remember your heart pounding with excitement, at least if you're like me. The thrill of going to sleep that evening with the anticipation and hope of what was to come the next day. The promise of wonderful food. Fellowship together with family members. And of course, presence was soon to be fulfilled. Eventually, all of us counted enough sheep to fall asleep. And then subsequently, wake up at like 4 a.m. was a great day. The waiting of the year was finally over. And then, more quickly than you might have hoped, it was Christmas night. You were going to sleep again, hopefully satisfied with all that the day brought. And yet, Disappointed that the day was over so fast. And if you were like me, you woke up the very next day and began waiting again. Just 364 more days until Christmas. As a child, I lived life kind of between Christmases. Thankful for what I got from the last Christmas, Those promises fulfilled, and yet longing for and looking forward to that which would come the next Christmas. As Christians, we celebrate Advent seasonally to kind of reenact and remember what it was like for the people of Israel to await the coming of the Messiah. And on Christmas Day, we celebrate his arrival. Yet when our Advent celebrations are over, we don't stop waiting. We continue waiting for that second and final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem the world, to end death, and to usher in the happily ever after of eternity. We live not between Christmases but between appearings of Jesus. And so on this first Lord's Day after Christmas, I want to remind you all that we are both a satisfied people, satisfied in Christ, satisfied in the promises of God which have been fulfilled. And yet, we are also a waiting people. Those who are Longing for the fulfillment of God's promise to return and make all things new. And so we turn this morning to Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, wherein we will see Jesus' faithful parents and two of God's faithful servants enjoying. The fulfillment of a promise long awaited. And I think that we will learn from them to believe God's promises, obey God's word, and to wait expectantly on God. I think the the main idea of the text, what Luke really wants us to know or to see in this pericope, is that Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is is God's salvation. We'll work through the text by considering its characters in order. I will pray, and then we will get to it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who binds us all together in him. We pray that you would give to us your spirit this morning so that we might hear you, so we might know you more deeply. Fill us with yourself as we sing to your glory, as we study the scriptures, as we submit ourselves to that which you have to teach us, as we pray and give Lord, bless this gathering. Let it be evident to all who are here that you are here. Make us more like Christ this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Not verse 1. That's a mistake. Verse 21. When the eight days were completed for Jesus' circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male Will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Joseph and Mary are crossing the necessary T's and dotting the requisite I's of the law. They are showing their obedience to God's commands by keeping the law. And we we know a little bit about what this law says. After all, we studied Exodus and Leviticus. And so we know that the firstborn is to be symbolically offered to God, dedicated to the Lord, and then bought back as a way of showing that God owns everything that the people have. That indeed, God is worthy of the first and best of his people. It's to remind his people that he has redeemed them out of Egypt and out of slavery. It is by his mighty arm that they are a free people and that he is worthy of their worship. Because we studied Leviticus, we remember from that wonderfully colorful sermon on childbirth and discharge from Leviticus chapter 12 and, and chapter 15, that childbirth is one of these things that renders a person unclean. This, of course, is related to the ceremonial system within Israel. And ritual purity was aimed at teaching about God's holiness, the people's sinfulness, and the need for God's people to be holy. And it's an important distinction that you could be ritually unclean, but not in sin. Some sins would make you ritually unclean, but not all ritual uncleanliness was in and of itself sin. A good example of this is childbirth. God commands his people to fill the earth with children, with image bearers, and so it was no sin to give birth, but it would render one unclean. Indeed, blood in the right place in Leviticus can purchase the life of the worshiper back from the wrath of God. It can purify the person in sin. But blood in the wrong place, along with other discharges, rendered one unclean. And this was problematic because ritual purity determined which practices, which ritual practices you could perform, where you could go. It's a little bit like if you think about, uh, in non-COVID times, a hospital. A a healthy person can go in and hold a newborn baby if they want to come and visit you. But somebody with the flu is not permitted to go into the hospital and hold that same unborn baby. Somebody who is healthy and is sterilized and qualified can go into the operating room. Whereas a person who is simply healthy may not. See, just like our physical wellness can sometimes determine the places within a hospital complex that we may go or not go, likewise, the states of ritual purity within Israel determined where a person could go or not go. And so Mary is ritually impure, not as a consequence of her own sin, but as a consequence of this ceremonial system which is meant to teach people about sin and its consequences and the need for a substitute to purchase them back from the wrath of God and to purify them from the pollution of sin. And so Mary and Joseph come after waiting the the 40 days it would have been for her to be ready to go to the temple complex. And they come ready to offer that burnt offering which substitutes its place, takes the place of the worshiper and that purification offering which purifies. Mary and Joseph, we we are to see, are committed to obeying God's word. The commands of the law are the context in which Joseph and Mary obey God. It's the context of their actions. And what we need to see is that their obedience to the commands of God are how they honor God. In fact, obedience to God's commands is how we love God back. It's how we express our love for God. And Jesus will later say this in John 14, 15. If you love me, it's a conditional statement, right? If you love me, then, well, then, then what? Then you will keep my commands. Likewise here, if you love God, Joseph and Mary, before Christ, you're going to keep his commandments. So they, they are being presented to us as pious parents. They're committed to obeying God's word, both on the lips of an angel and that which is written down in Holy Scripture. They name the child Jesus like Gabriel told them to, and they obey the prescriptions of the law like Exodus and Leviticus tell them to. If we love God, well then what? We will keep His commands. This is how we love God back. It's not some of us think of obedience as like this cold, like, oh, I guess I gotta guess I gotta you know, attend church, guess I I gotta, you know, give up swear words, and, and guess I gotta do all these, these holy things, and God is such a downer. But brothers and sisters, God's commands are for our good. And we will find that our happiness increases with our level of holiness. God's way to live is the best way. He is after our ultimate satisfaction, not in his commands, not in ourself, not in our performance, but in him. This isn't a burden, it is a birthright. First John 5 2. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is. What is it to love God? To keep His commands. And His commands are not a burden. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world. Our faith. Faithfulness to God looks like obeying His word. Do you have the same submissive posture towards God's Word as Mary and Joseph. Notice also this faithful couple comes and they don't offer what is typical in this particular circumstance. The one-year-old blemishless male lamb for a burnt offering is not given. What's given is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. We don't know which. Two birds. Why? Well, because God cares for the poor. God has woven a provision for the poor into the warp and woof of the law. God will not allow poverty to be an excuse for not worshiping him. Poverty is not a sin. Being poor does not mean that one has God's disapproval or that God is angry with that particular person. Poverty doesn't prevent anyone from worshiping God. Mary and Joseph don't have enough to buy a lamb, but God has made provision for them. They can offer two birds. You cannot measure your spiritual vitality, your spiritual health, by the numbers in your bank account. That that might seem obvious, but it's really important that we get a hold of this. Because there are a whole slew of false teachers that teach the opposite of this. In fact, they teach us that we can tell how much God loves us and how good we are with God based on how much of God's blessing we have. The calculus goes like this. It's a little quid pro quo situation. Well, if you have faith, then you won't get sick and you'll have plenty of money because God wants to bless you. What God most wants for you is your health and your wealth. And so the way that, that you can show God that you have faith, well, you sow a little faith seed. Just like you plant a seed in the ground and you know, a tree grows up. It's a little faith seed of some money. right? This is, how, this is how these charlatans work. So if you have faith in God, they say, you will give to my ministry. Even if you don't have enough money. And in fact, they're going to encourage you to give beyond your means in a way that is unwise. Give to to this ministry, and guess what God has told me? Not in the Bible, but he's told me there's a tenfold blessing coming for you. So if you give $10, you're going to get $100 in return. If you sow this faith seed, if you believe enough, if you conjure enough faith up within yourself, and you make these particular false teachers very, very wealthy, well then you'll have all of God's blessing. And the teaching that is implicit in this system of thought, this heresy, this damnable teaching, is that material poverty is the result of a lack of faith. That material poverty is sin. What this system teaches is that if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. That is from hell. We have to be wise to these things. Because typically those who are peddling this false teaching, they write books and they have great smiles. I imagine some of you have some of their materials on your nightstand. Be weary of the likes of Joel Osteen and Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer and T.D. Jakes. Oh, they're they're very serpent-like, very crafty. They have great smiles and sharp teeth. That theology will devour you. And when suffering comes, and it will, it will crush you. Because you won't be able to understand why God wouldn't want to bless you. You'll find a deficiency in yourself. Oh, I must not be believing enough. God has left me because I don't believe enough. Friends, that is antithetical to the gospel. God saves through great faith and through little faith. Mustard seed-sized faith. Can't measure your spiritual health by your bank account. God God loves you because he loves you. He loves you in Christ Jesus who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if your faith is in Jesus, well then he, this is the, the staggering, staggering truth, then God, the Father, Loves you like he loves Jesus. I mean, think about that for a minute. Struggle with it. That means God doesn't get tired of you. He doesn't get tired of me. It means he delights in you. It's not like he goes, well, you know, Brother David has really great faith, so I can tolerate him for a little while. I like him a good bit, but Brother Justin, he has like teeny-weeny faith, and five minutes, I'm done with that guy. No, God, the Father, loves those who are in Christ as he loves Christ. Fully. Because it is not the amount of our faith that makes us right with God. It is the object of our faith. Our salvation isn't about how much we believe, but who we believe. For example, if I have 100% confidence and sincerely believe with all my heart that I can breathe underwater, and then I go swimming and go underwater, and say, Watch this, gonna breathe underwater, it's not gonna work out for me, no matter how much faith I have. I'm going to drown. Because the object of my faith, my ability to breathe underwater, is not able to deliver. It's faulty. On the other hand, if I'm standing on the precipice of a cliff and I fall off, and at the very last moment I see a little twig of a branch jutting out from the mountainside, and I grab a hold of it desperately, with very little confidence that it's going to be able to sustain my weight. And yet it sustains my weight, not ultimately because of my faith, it's because that it's able to sustain my weight. Perhaps one more. Uh, if I get on an airplane with zero confidence that it will be able to get me to my destination and it takes off from New York and then lands in London and I get off, my faith has nothing to do with the airplane's ability to get me from New York to London. I just have to have enough faith to step onto the plane. You see, God saves whether you have great faith or little teeny-weeny, mustard-sized faith. Not the amount of our faith that makes us right with God. It is faith it is putting our faith in Christ, whether large or small. Christ is who makes us right with God, not our faith. The question is not how much faith you have, but who your faith is in. If our faith is in Christ, we get all of God. Do not put your faith in faith. It'll become a tricky way of depending on yourself. You'll end up turning God into a means to an end. To get those things that you want. Christmas is not about getting a few of your favorite things. The gospel is not a means to an end. The good news of the gospel is not that you will be healthy and wealthy right now in this life. The good news of the gospel is that you get God. God is the goal of the gospel. And if we get our vision clouded, we will confuse those blessings which are to come to us as we wait on Christ's return with that which is passing away and right now. And we will look and make idols out of temporary blessings. And those things will steal our hearts away from God. Do not put your faith in faith. Do not put your faith in the things of this world. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. The good news is that if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus' substitutionary work on the cross, you get God. The good news is that you can live forever with God. You can have the joy of Jesus Christ right now. I encourage you to Believe. Poverty is no sin and it will not prevent you from worshiping God. It doesn't stop Joseph and Mary. Indeed, they are pious parents. And that's showed to us once again in verses 39 and 40 at the end of the chapter. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, The boy grew up, became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was upon him. We don't often think about this, but Joseph and Mary were models of discipleship. They were the parents of Jesus. And one of the primary means by which God, I mean, of course the Holy Spirit is involved, but the parents here are are the means by which Jesus grows up and is shaped. Jesus did not come out of the womb with a full beard, quoting the Torah. He didn't arrive as a fully mature man, but as the fullness of God and helpless babe. You read through the Gospels and you'll find Jesus is growing up. He's growing in wisdom and in stature. Friends, he's fully human. He had to learn these things. And one of the primary avenues through which Jesus learned about God, being God, it's mind bending, is through his parents. Isn't it amazing that the creator of the world, creator of language, had to learn to speak? That the one who measured the waters of the oceans in the hollows of his hand, humbled himself so that he would be held in the hands of a virgin. It is fascinating that God would use the natural instruction and ordinary obedience of ordinary parents to grow Jesus up in wisdom and in stature. We parents have an incredible influence in the lives of our children. And we have a tremendous responsibility to teach our children. We need to teach them the Christian faith. Teach them to love Jesus. Our spiritual practices and priorities will pave the way for their own spiritual practices and priorities. And it's so often the case that our children are like little mirrors that reveal to us our own flaws. What are you teaching Your children. What are your priorities throughout the week? What's your priority on Sunday morning? What if somebody looked at your life? One of your children, for example. What would they conclude is most important to you? What what is your greatest hope for your children, parents? I think for at least some of us, in a a moment of honesty about our own sinfulness, some of us might prefer an atheist doctor or an unbelieving Wall Street banker to a dead missionary in Africa. And I think this reveals to us our mixed up priorities, our overvaluing the temporary and undervaluing the eternal. For even those of you who went, prosperity gospel, I don't believe that. Maybe you do. Maybe you have implicitly. Maybe I have. Are you putting your hopes for yourself, for your children in this life or in the next? Because everything in this world is worthless in comparison to what's coming in the next. Everything in this world is passing away. Jesus Christ, however, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We ought to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are below. Because we are those whose lives are hidden with Christ in God. We are making with our lives long-term investments. And to the eyes of the world, it might look like madness. You're going to go to Africa? To a people that don't know the gospel? To share with them the words of this ancient book? What are you doing? We're going to invite strangers into our homes. Doesn't that put your own family at risk? Why would you do that? We're going to adopt children. Why, why would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's going to make your life harder. It's going to cost money. It's going to bring a heartache. Why would you do that? We're going to serve it at food banks to help feed the poor. Why? Why that, that, That's your time. Why would you waste it? Well, I get it. Maybe you're doing it to make yourself feel better about yourself. No, we, we do these things because we are investing in eternity. We are living out our belief that Jesus is all-satisfying. That He is greater than anything this world has to offer. That He is our greatest joy. Friends, let us live with our eyes on eternity. And parents, let us think about what we are teaching to our children. Parents, grandparents, Aim to teach those children that come into your home that Jesus is the greatest priority of one's life, the greatest joy in life. Jesus grew up under the natural instruction and ordinary obedience of his parents who indeed were faithful to obey all that God had commanded through the law and the prophets, and came to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And at some point during their journey, they came across a man named Simeon who was waiting to see the promise of God. Look with me at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout waiting for, looking forward to, Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw God's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took up Jesus in his arms and praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Mary and Joseph have their child, they're going through the temple and Simeon snatches him up and says, my eyes have seen God's salvation. When I read this text, I always think about uh, when Chelsea and I were in China a few years back and we had just one child uh, and he was about six months old. And I just remember everywhere we went, the the Chinese people would crowd around us and they would say, oh, he is a porcelain doll. How lovely. May I hold him? And we would say, yes, take him, please. And and they, they would hold little baby Elliot and they would coo and call and tell us how wonderful he was. So they really love kids over there. It was it's a great benefit when you went to airports. There was a separate line if you had kids, like, and you were trying to go through those checkpoints, you got to go right through fast track. So we had like this rude awakening when we got back to Dulles, and we're like, oh, there's the line. We're going to go this family line. Oh, they, we're going to have to still wait. This isn't that. Right? This is not just a random stranger fawning over a newborn child. Simeon is worshiping Jesus. He is identifying Jesus as God's salvation. This is a significant proclamation. He is saying, I have been waiting for those words of Isaiah chapter 40 to come to fruition. Comfort! Comfort my people! I have been waiting for the consolation of God and He's here! I've seen God's salvation. I, I, can, I can die now, my Lord. He's not saying, like, kill me right now, right? He's saying, like, like, you might after, you know, a big Thanksgiving dinner, you're unbuttoning your pants, like, I could die now. He's satisfied in Christ. He's satisfied in what God has done. He's saying, I, I have seen your salvation. And man, I, this is good. Friend, I wonder if you have had that kind of an experience with Jesus. If you're here and you're non-Christian, I want you to know this kind of satisfaction and joy and peace. Christ offers to you peace with God. You must repent of your sin and submit yourself to the Lordship of Jesus. And you will see God's salvation. You will find satisfaction in the face of Christ. Christian, we don't graduate from this, we don't ever get past just looking to Jesus as our salvation. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian faith. It is the A to Z of the Christian faith. It is shallow enough for a child to play in and it is deep enough to drown an elephant. We ought never get over the good news that in Jesus Christ we have been reconciled to God. It's through Jesus that we come to know the God we were made for. It's in Jesus that our restless hearts find rest. Don't get over this. I think it's just so easy as we go through the normal day-to-day grind to start depending on ourselves, to start kind of working towards salvation, as if we earn God's favor. It's such a temptation. I mean, even even like in preaching, something as, as sacred as preaching, it's a temptation for me to, after each sermon, go, okay, was that really good or was that really bad? and implicitly think within myself, well, if I did really good, then God's going to love me a little bit more. That's not true. I don't know what it is for you. What are you tempted to believe makes God love you more? Friend, remind yourself, you don't have to be at work earning your salvation. Your sweat and blood does not earn you peace with God. Jesus' sweat and blood does. Remind yourself to stop working and rest in what Jesus has done. Be satisfied in the completed work of the cross and resurrection. Say to yourself, I could die now. My eyes have seen your salvation, God. This is an amazing proclamation from Simeon. And yet, it's also a troubling proclamation. Go with me at verse 33. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will indeed pierce your own soul. He's a sign to be opposed so that the thoughts and hearts of many will be revealed. The arrival of God's Messiah, the arrival of God's Savior, is both amazing and it is troubling. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who will also bring division. He is a sign of God's promises kept. And yet he will be opposed. He will cause many to trip over him and to fall and to stumble. Indeed, Jesus' ministry will expose the hearts of men. Jesus shows where hearts really are before God. He exposes all of us. And how we respond to Jesus will reveal whether or not we are truly in God's favor. Jesus divides. A good example of this is is Lazarus. If you remember the story, Lazarus is sick. They tell Jesus he's sick. Jesus stays where he's at so that Lazarus dies. He shows up four days later. Lazarus has been dead a while. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he makes good on those words by raising Lazarus from the dead. And what happens? Do you remember? Everyone believe? No. Many believe, but many others go and tell the religious authorities on Jesus. As if he'd done something wrong. He's raised this guy Lazarus from the dead. And those same religious authorities turn around and resolve to kill not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Friends, Jesus divides. When we are confronted with Christ, we will either submit to Him as Lord or we will despise Him as a rival to our own kingship of our lives. And apart from grace, apart from the miracle of regeneration, we all hate Jesus and love our sins. Apart from God's saving grace, when the light of Jesus shows up, we all scurry across the floor and look for refuge in the dark as if we were a bunch of cockroaches. We hate the light. We don't want to be exposed by Jesus. We see the holiness of God. It reveals us for what we are, and we hate it. We, we hate it, but we, we need something outside of ourselves cause us to believe in this great God and King who is so holy and beautiful. But we, we need eyes to see that Jesus is God's salvation. We need hearts to believe that Jesus is God's salvation. We need grace. But what we need is a Savior. And that's what Christmas is all about. God has sent to us a Savior. Indeed, God gives new hearts. God gives eyes to see. God gives the gift of faith. Friends, I encourage you this morning to lay down your arms of rebellion against God. and To put your faith in Christ. Come out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus is the peace that brings division. Simeon's announcement is amazing. There's also another figure in the temple named Anna, and she testifies also to Jesus' greatness. Go with me at verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. And she did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were waiting for, looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so here's Anna, likely got married in her early teenage years. Her husband dies after seven years, and then she lives 84 years and does not get remarried, which would have been highly unusual in that culture. It's unusual even in our culture. And so she's in her 90s, maybe over hundred. And she has spent day after day after day waiting in the temple, seeking God, waiting for the redemption that's to come to Israel. She is longing for God's promises to be fulfilled. And all at once, they are. And at that very moment, as Simeon says, My eyes have seen your salvation. She begins to thank God and to speak to all who would listen about Jesus, the Redeemer of His people. Do you long for God? Do you long for the return of Jesus? And if not, I would suggest that you are far too comfortable. Comfort and prosperity can kill dependence on God. It's One of those warnings in Deuteronomy, God says to Israel, be careful when things are good because you're going to get fat and you're going to forget about me. Friends, we ought to long for the return of Christ. It's better than whatever you have right now. Those of you who are suffering don't need to be reminded of this. Long for the time when Christ would return and raise the dead. Make all things new. Do do you long for Jesus? Luke here in chapter 2 is lining up witnesses to the reality that Jesus is God's salvation. Early on in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel testifies about Jesus, saying to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Elizabeth testifies about Jesus. And why is this granted to me that the mother of My Lord, Jesus is in the womb and she's calling him my Lord, should come to me. Zechariah testifies about Jesus. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And then speaking about John the Baptist, he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord, before Jesus, to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the ways of peace. An unnamed angel testifies about Jesus to unnamed shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. Simeon testifies about Jesus. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. And Anna testifies about Jesus coming at that very hour. She begins to give thanks to God and to speak about Jesus to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Over and over and over again, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh, the one who created the universe, the one who put galaxies in order has come as a baby so that he might grow up and live a perfect life in the place of his people, so that he might die a substitutionary death in the place of his people, so he might raise from the dead and rule and reign and one day return and end evil without ending his people. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is God's salvation, and that if we are in darkness, if we are in despair, if we find ourselves unsatisfied, he wants us to know that God has sent a deliverer, that Jesus is God's salvation, that Jesus can satisfy those deepest longings we have that Jesus can save us from the darkness because he is the light of the world. Luke is lining up these witnesses to testify to some wonderful news. It's the good news of Christmas. The good news of Christmas is that all other world religions and all worldly ways of thinking are wrong. We don't just do the best we can live really good lives, believe whatever we want, and then eventually arrive at the top of that metaphorical mountain where we come face-to-face with our Creator. Now, the good news of Christmas is that God recognizes we could never pay for our own sins. We could never make ourselves right with Him. We could never get up that mountain to where He is. And What He's done is He's come down from that mountain to us. That's what Christmas is. God comes to us. Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. He is Emmanuel because He is God with us. He is the perfect burnt offering who really does purchase people back from the wrath of God. He is the perfect purification offering. He really does cleanse his people from the pollution of sin. He is all that the temple anticipated. He is the place where we come and meet with God. The word became flesh and dwelt. The word there is literally tabernacled among us. The point is clear. God came to us at Christmas so that Jesus might die for us on the cross and rise from that he came so that we might be with him. That's the good news of Christmas. That's the good news of the gospel. Friends, believe and rest in this promise. Look forward to and long and wait for the return of Christ. Happily ever after is coming. Look forward to it. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are so prone to sin, so prone to be content with the mud pies of the world when you offer to us holidays at the sea in Christ. And the problem, Lord, is that we look for these trivial joys rather than true deep and lasting joy that is in Christ. We ask that He would cause us to long for Jesus, to enjoy His presence with us, to enjoy the fellowship with all the saints. But even as we enjoy gathering together to worship You right now, there would also be a deep longing in us for that day when we will look Jesus in the eye will look full in his wonderful face and say, we have seen your salvation, God. Jesus is King. Lord, give us Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.